This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there, there are passengers to be in here just lay down and do it. <laughs> Those inmates that were here in the institution during the execution, it had an impression on them that maybe it was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until we get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to them. That was one of the, one of the problems we ran into, because you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking and joking and drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to... to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out welcome back ladies and gentlemen to another episode of behind gray walls a podcast about the old idaho state penitentiary and the men and women who worked and resided here my name's anthony and i'm chatting with sky how's it going sky you know today didn't have a great day just kind of was feeling off you know everyone has their off days and uh, i left the library early just because i had managed to squeeze a little bit of work out of me and I decided to go outside, and it's 70 degrees, and all of the leaves oh. are changing, and I just did, like, a workout, and I was like, this is it. Like, it fixed, <laughs> it feels like it fixed everything. <laughs> it wow. didn't, but man, it was so nice to be outside. The weather was absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. Like, every time I see a, <laughs> a tree with yellow leaves on it, I, like, can't help but smile. So I really made my day better but uh how are you that's great oh i am good yeah we are recording this a couple days after our sleepless and stripes event here at the old pen we had 31 people who slept over at the prison and they seemed to have a really great time i as soon as they started pulling out ghost hunting equipment Right about no 11 way. o'clock. I was like, okay, that's the end of my shift. Yep, Good I got to go. Good night. Sweet dreams. <laughs> I would not want to sleep after ghost hunting. We had to lock oh. up once after ghost hunting, and I was like, I'll never do that again. Oh, yeah. That was the time that something threw a rock at yep. us, right? Oh, I'll never forget it oh. for as long as I live. Yeah. As An- Anthony's telling this, like, <laughs> macabre story about a, a guy getting his cut his throat cut in front of the, the barber shop. And then just like, dink, rock being thrown in the corner of the room at 2 a.m. I was like, I got to get out of here. Actually, uh, good luck locking up. I got to go. <laughs> yeah, it was it was getting spooky. Just like speaking with some of the folks and like they had that equipment that kind of goes like, through all the channels. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it, it started saying things. And I was like, uh, actually, would you mind turning that off? Uh, <laughs> what was it saying? I'm not into that. <laughs> it was saying like bound. No. Nope. And then. It seemed to be referring to me, and it kept <gasps> saying, like, tall. I was in the dungeon at the time, and I was I was telling our guests about a couple things about life in the dungeon, and it seemed to be referring to me and not liking that I was, like, talking about it. Oh. And, oh, man. Yeah, uh, I was... am speechless. If that happened to me, I would never come back. <laughs> I know, yeah. I The scariest thing, though, honestly, is that I – Earlier in the day, put a ladder into the dungeon, and I crawled down there, and I was looking around, and I was like, oh, I got to make sure I avoid this giant spider web, 
And totally, the first people who came down, I walked right into it. I was just covered. Ooh. I just felt like I was covered in spiders all night. It was, uh, it was an event. <laughs> Truly, I, I thought, I because was I there when we did the very first one of those, and it was. I believe so. We were just like, I don't understand, but people want, people love this. It is, it's a fun time. I. Um, don't think I would want to stay over, but it's fun to work at least. Yeah, for sure. It was it was a really fun night, and thank you if if there are any listeners that, that spent the night. You were such a fun group. Thank you all for coming, and you know you can put sleeping in an abandoned prison. You scratch that off your bucket list, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's a story that not very many people are gonna have, so that is like I understand why everyone like wants to do it. It is a pretty cool like brag. Thank you, everybody, who came to all of our events this month. They were a huge success, so much fun. It just was such a good time. (laughs) I bet. Yeah, Halloween at the Old Pen is never a boring affair. Yeah, that's right. Well, should we get to some stories today? Let's do it. I think that you are starting today. Yeah, and mine actually has a little bit of a Halloween connection to it. So my subject today is Wesley Allen Hudson, number 7047. My sources were the, uh, of course, his inmate file, the Idaho Daily Statesman digitized archive from NewsBank, newspapers.com, uh, 1948 issues of the Clock Prison Magazine in a 1949 issue, Britannica.com biography on Arthur Rubinstein, and the American Song Poem Music Archives article on the Nordyke Publishing Company. So Wesley Hudson was born on February 22, 1928, in Arbuckle, California, to John Henry and Emily Rose. Wesley would note that his father was a, quote, radio worker, end quote. His parents divorced in 1936 when Wesley was eight years old. He later described his father as an abusive alcoholic. The separation was the last time he actually saw his father, and in 1939, his mother, Emily, married David Hudson. Wesley took the name Hudson instead of Rose, and he was an only child and had a decent childhood, noting that he had plenty of opportunities and got along with his stepfather and considered his mother, quote, firm but not harsh, end quote, with him. It was noted in his file that he moved constantly and never had a permanent childhood home, which limited his opportunities. His mother worked as a typist for the State Retirement Board, and his stepfather was listed in the 1940 census as a garage man. A 1944 California voter registration list actually noted that David was a car washer. Emily brought young Wesley along to Presbyterian Church, but he stopped going as a teenager. One skill he had throughout his life was playing the piano. He played professionally for six years, starting around 1942 at the age of 14. He performed at the La Vida Dancing Studio in Sacramento, California for a year, and most likely he was performing music in the studio for the students to dance to. Wesley played for six months at the California Theater in Sacramento, and he also worked for five months as the pianist for Harry James in 1944. Now, Harry James was a popular American trumpet player who led a big band in the late 30s and early 40s. This is a really impressive feat for a young Wesley Hudson. I found several recordings of the Harry James band from that year, but 
unfortunately, the pianist wasn't actually listed in these recordings. So I don't know if he is actually on any of them or if he was just kind of touring or filling in for this famous trumpeter. And I don't know if he was fired or if he quit the band because it was around this time that his mother was hospitalized for health complications. While she struggled in the hospital, Wesley actually dropped out of high school around 1944 after completing the 10th grade. He was, quote, becoming involved in delinquency, end quote, and sent to the Preston Reformatory in Sacramento, quote, for participation in a sex perversion party does not seem to have any strength of character, end quote. It took some digging, but I actually found that there was a raid of a sex party by Sacramento police on November 2nd, 1944. How old was he? So he is about 16 years old. So he's 16 years old at like a big orgy. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So late October 1944, a teenage boy had been stopped for a traffic charge. And something about his state led police to question him. And he actually revealed that uh, homosexual orgies were occurring at the home of a well-known architect and yachtsman named Earl Barnett. He was a 45-year-old man in Sacramento. That's worse. Yeah. If it was with other teenagers, I was like, not great, but uh, do what you got to do. But that is uh, insidious. And... For listeners, you can skip ahead a couple minutes here. This does go into some some sexual themes. Earl was responsible for designing Sacramento's Memorial Auditorium, um, which is a gorgeous auditorium. I was looking at photos of it. The Sutter Club and the Westminster Presbyterian Church, which is probably where Wesley and his mother went to church, uh, among other houses, schools, and commercial design projects in town. They were... And still are beautiful buildings and uh, feats of architecture. Those familiar with the Boys of Boise scandal may hear some common themes here from a decade earlier in Sacramento, California. So older homosexual men were grooming these teenage boys, paying them like $2.50 to perform acts in the park and at Barnett's home. When police raided Earl Barnett's home, there were, quote, hundreds of obscene pictures of nude young men, several trunks full of costumes, a dozen pornographic illustrated books, and a file of negatives showing naked youths, neatly indexed and complete with the names of the subjects, end quote. So Earl actually admitted to taking the photos and to drawing these illustrated pornographic books. And he admitted to meeting the boys while swimming in the Sacramento River near the I Street Bridge. Uh, 25 to 30 teenage boys were actually arrested when their names were found at Earl's house during the raid. One of the 16-year-old boys stated, quote, Oh, we just hang around the park at night. It isn't necessary to go looking for men. They always find you. End quote. In December 1944, Earl Barnett, described as a, quote, sexual psychopath, end quote, was sentenced to five to 75 years in San Quentin. According to Wesley, he was actually at the house having his first encounter with an older man when the raid occurred that led to his arrest and sentence to the Preston Reformatory. And we will get more into Wesley's sexuality later in this podcast. According to reports, the Preston Reformatory was, quote, overcrowded with 300 youths, 
end quote, in 1944. And authorities said juvenile delinquency was, quote, fanned into flame by wartime social maladjustment, spread in wildfire proportions until now it is completely out of control, end quote. So I searched the school and found that Wesley was actually in with some really violent juveniles serving for armed robberies, assaults, and all kinds of different violent crimes. And while serving in the Preston Reformatory, his mother's health declined further. On September 25th, 1945, a year later, she passed away. Uh, Authorities would note the look of, quote, tenderness when Wesley spoke about his mother. Now, Wesley was paroled from the Preston Reformatory three months later in December 1945. He was two months away from his 18th birthday in February 1946. He moved in with his grandmother, and according to later accounts, quote, the grandmother was a religious fanatic and he left California for Idaho, end quote. It may have been due to his sexuality or his work as a pianist at nightclubs, but he left his grandmother, broke his parole, and headed to Idaho. His draft registration card is dated May 22, 1946 in Sacramento, so he most likely left shortly after that. And that summer, he got a job working as a pianist in Boise at the Clover Club in July 1946, where he was making $200 to $300 a week. And I can say as a musician, that's incredible. That is a lot of money. Oh, my God. Well, that's a lot even now, much less in the 40s. Right. I think I think though that speaks to what the sort of music culture was like in the United States at that time, mm-hmm. um, because Boise is is not really like in the 1940s. I would argue the like most you know party club central. Um, yeah. But you know, I, if you're the biggest nerd like me and have watched enough films, like almost. I would say like one out of 10 films revolve around someone being this like aspiring musician and trying to like Mm -hmm. make it big. And every other film has just like a big band, uh, you know, scene in it where people are just dancing at the club and, and jazz and, um, uh, I mean, arguably pretty much just jazz, um, is really big and everyone, everyone wants it in their homes everyone wants it at the club where they go out like it is sort of a music hungry culture at the time uh but a very specific kind um you know big band swing and and jazz i guess maybe not jazz it's late for jazz so big band swing kind of stuff but anyway sorry yeah it's hard to be in these positions like i've worked quite a few of these type of gigs where i just play piano while people are eating or you know having cocktails and stuff And it's hard to maintain that week after week, make the owner happy in all the song choices that you're making, make the visitors happy, be on and be able to play for like five solid hours. It's at the same time, it's a tough life. Yeah, I would imagine. So at the same time, though, I'd imagine it's also a different energy, though, because more people are dancing like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was such a much more of a cultural phenomenon to just like go and dance um, yeah. more than it is now. And so I would imagine as a as someone who plays a, a musical instrument of which I am not, I would imagine <laughs> you're energized by people literally physically moving to the music that you're making. Um, so I would imagine it's, I wouldn't say easier, but because you have to know a lot more and, but yeah, that's, it's a good point. And 
Yeah, it's not a, I don't imagine it's an easy life. It's so fun, though. <laughs> it, it, listen, I, I wish we could still dance uh, like they did back then, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are some places I know in Boise that, you know, they have uh, live music several nights a week. So oh, definitely, I bet there are other venues in your towns. If you've got them, post them in our comment section. And maybe you can meet a fellow Behind Grey Walls listener and, and learn some dance. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Support the arts. Support the musicians. Absolutely. <laughs> so the Clover Club was actually located at uh, 101 South 9th Street on the corner of 9th and Main in downtown Boise. And I believe it actually stood where the Wells Fargo Center, which was constructed in the late 80s, I think it's where that now stands. And now while Wesley was playing piano at the club in 1946, Boise police were actually raiding clubs in the area, and the owner of the club was actually fined with illegal liquor sales. And they had a beer license, but they didn't have one for liquor. Other clubs were busted for having gambling machines and other illegal items. The Clover Club was actually remodeled and reopened the next year in 1947 as the Basque Village. So it seems that Wesley's job was probably fraught as a uh, police are busting in and trying to catch them while he's sitting in the corner tinkling away on the piano. Now, during the time Wesley lived in Idaho, he received a phone call from a former juvenile delinquent he served in the Preston Reformatory with, and this boy was demanding that Wesley send him some money or else. Quote, he would give his address to the California Youth Authority for parole violation prosecution, end quote. Wesley was being blackmailed. He sent money for several months, but the boy kept insisting it wasn't enough. On October 25th, quote, at 11 at night, I received a telephone call from a friend of mine in Portland, Oregon, who told me to come to Portland for he had enough evidence against me to convict me of murder. I refused to go and went to my rooming house at Betsy Ross Rooming House, end quote. Wesley proceeded to drink out of fear and anxiety, noting, quote, he seldom drinks except as a social thing, has been drunk only once or twice before that. He got drunk, he says, because he was scared by receiving a message from a boyfriend, end quote. While intoxicated, in his own words, Wesley, quote, went into a room and stole a suitcase, an overcoat, a pair of pants, some shirts, and left the next morning for Butte, Montana. I came back to Boise and called up the police station, and they arrested me, end quote. He noted that he didn't even remember stealing any of these items. So, a victim of blackmail, Wesley Hudson was arrested in Boise on Halloween, October 31st, 1946. This was amid the Ralph Golden trial, the retired policeman I discussed in Season 5, Episode 44, and... That day, on Halloween, the judge actually gave Ralph a moment to confer with his attorneys and called Wesley Hudson in to discuss the case. Uh, Wesley actually waived his preliminary hearing, and the judge placed him on a $500 bond for a trial with the district court. Ralph Golden and Wesley Hudson would have been in the Ada County Jail together awaiting their trials. On Halloween, the Idaho Statesman actually teamed up with the Ada and Granada Theaters in Boise for a film screening for nearly 2,000 children, quote, who signed the Halloween Good Behavior Pledge, who had promised to engage in nothing but harmless fun on Halloween night, end quote. 
And they were actually treated with cartoon shorts and the movies The Chimp and the Loon and the Western The Silver City Kid if they signed this pledge. And uh, <laughs> just just so you know what's going on outside of the courthouse in downtown Boise. And this is like, I do think w- like what modern Halloween has developed into is um, not any like tricking anymore. Um, I'm sure I talked about this last year because it's my only reference for what Halloween was like at any point besides ours, but Mimi in St. Louis, 1944 film, the little kids on Halloween, they go to like scary people. Well, first of all, they burn furniture in the middle of the road, which seems insane, (laughs) but then they take flour and they throw it in people's, like they knock on the door and like, it's a scary person and they throw flour in their face. Um, (laughs) Um, and that, like, to the little kid gang is, like, quote-unquote killing them, right? So it's, like, causing mischief but in a really harmless way. And that's just, like, not what we do anymore. We say trick-or-treat, but there is no tricks ever involved if no one gives us a treat. Like, if you get toothpaste instead of candy, you don't, like, pull a trick on anyone. And I'm not saying we should bring that back because it could get out of hand, but gosh, wouldn't Halloween be way more fun? There were a lot of uh, other articles I was kind of piecing through, and one of was, like, recalling Boise of yesterday, and it was talking about in, like, the 1890s that this uh, teacher just was constantly the butt of Halloween pranks every year. And they were talking about one year the kids went over to his house, went into his barn, and and actually took his prized horse and, like, and his wagon and took off with it. And then another year they painted the horse like a zebra. And so they, like... Painted all these stripes on it and all this stuff. Oh. It was so funny. Yeah. <laughs> See, like, don't steal property or, like, mark up. But, like, if you want to throw flour in people's faces, I'm not <laughs> saying do it, but I'm just saying it might be more fun. Oh, no. What's going to happen <laughs> on our next live show, Sky? <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> and if you can name the person in Meet Me in St. Louis that they throw flour at, I will let you just, like, dump a whole sack of flour on me, honestly. <laughs> All right, you heard it right here, everybody. <laughs> it's a challenge. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right, so Wesley, he pled guilty two days later on November 2nd, 1946, and he was sentenced two weeks later on November 16th, 1946, to not less than two and a half nor more than 15 years in the Idaho State Penitentiary for the crime of burglary. And the judge wrote, quote, defendant entered in the nighttime a dwelling house at 818 West State Street and stole therefrom wearing apparel of the approximate value of $100, end quote. The judge gave Wesley a chance to choose the Preston Reformatory back in California or the Idaho State Penitentiary. Wesley chose the prison, quote, because over there he was badly beaten and maltreated. He is not in here. He regards the treatment over here pretty decent, end quote. So, in Wesley's intake forms from the district judge, it was noted under the question, what is the character of his associates? Quote, he played the piano in some local club, end quote. The next question asked, has the prisoner ever been in trouble of a criminal nature before? If so, what? And the answer states, yes. In California for a sex crime, defendant is a sex pervert known in the underworld as a fairy. He was listed as a habitual criminal and a parole violator for his stint in California. And in his interview asking about his past, authorities noted that he was a professional musician who is, quote, remarkably gifted. 
he studied music with several well-known musicians in California. Some items of his repertoire are Warsaw Concerto, Rhapsody in Blue, Chopin, Grieg, Beethoven's Concertos, Hungarian Rhapsody No. 2 by Liszt, and others. He's now playing anything, has done nightclub work mainly. After having heard him play, I can fully agree with Rubinstein's opinion, who once said to him, referring to his piano playing, It stinks, but it's all right. Uh. End quote. (laughs) (laughs) It stinks, but it's all right. I mean, for listeners, Arthur Rubinstein was this famed Polish-American pianist who was a child prodigy, performed international concerts throughout his whole life. Like, you can't talk about classical piano and not have his name listed. He moved to the United States during World War II, became a U.S. citizen in 1946, and he scored a bunch of films while living in Los Angeles in the 40s. The idea that Rubinstein, like, heard Wesley Hudson is remarkable. Look up his name. Yeah. Do you have a list of the movies that he was in by chance? Song of Love with Catherine Hepburn. Oh, and Spencer Tracy. Okay. And he appeared as himself in the films Carnegie Hall and Of Men and Music. Oh, huh, Song of Love. All right. Yeah, that's a big one. MGM. Yeah. Top right? stars. Oh, Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. I love so her. Everybody probably knows this guy in some, some capacity. Right. So... Wesley, on his intake, was received on November 16, 1946, as number 7047. He was 18 years old, 5 feet, 11 and a quarter inches tall, and 134 pounds. Uh, he had brown eyes and dark brown hair, a medium complexion. He had a tall build, obviously, and his occupation was pianist. His Bertillon showed that he had moles on his chest, back, and shoulders, vaccination scar on his left arm. He was circumcised and had hairy legs. His middle toe on his right foot was short, and his big toe and middle toe on his left foot had, quote, grown together, end quote. He had a birthmark on his back left side and a cut scar on his left wrist. There's a lot happening there, and I just am wondering, does he have exceptionally hairy legs for them to be noted on his Bertillion? They must have been, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sorry. (laughs) On one form, Wesley asked what his choice of work was while serving time, and he listed, quote, band, not particular, due to his experience, end quote. Wesley was noted again as an expert at the piano. And when the prison physician G.H. Wall did a checkup to see his employment recommendation, he noted that Wesley was, quote, probably able to perform listed classifications, but has female tendencies, homosexual, end quote. So Wesley's sexuality appeared in many prison files, many of which are redacted heavily. One noted that, quote, Even in his prison clothes, he looks well-groomed, shaved, his nails well done, and has helped his naturally pretty face to seem as feminine as possible. He has full insight as to his sexual inclinations. He himself does not see anything wrong with it, but he realizes, as all intellectual homosexuals do, that their sexual feelings and activities, especially in the USA, creates a serious social handicap. He informed me a psychiatrist advised him to leave the United States when his parole was completed and settled down with another man. It appears that this practice is not frowned on in Canada, France, Mexico, and many South American countries. There is no cure for an individual born with these tendencies, end quote. 
Wesley was commended in his intake papers for, quote, his cooperative and punctual manner of playing the organ for the chapel services, end quote. Asked what he'd like to do, he was, quote, interested in all types of music, both as a performer and a listener. He likes to dance, to the movies, mostly musicals, and go to baseball games, end quote. A few months into his sentence, in February 1947, an interesting letter arrived for Warden Lou Clapp from Mrs. L.E. Brady, who described herself as distantly related to the orphan boy, Wesley. She was good friends with Wesley's grandparents, who helped raise him, and Miss Ellie Brady described herself as a psychic and healer. She asked Warden Clapp in a difficult-to-read cursive letter to help shield and protect Wesley and asked, quote, This brings into my home dramatic powers? No greater now than dynamic is atomic and radar. Works hardships through public's false ideas and vibration misinformation into my home and family. But these are later days. My Lord would not have in his children ignorant. Sorry, can you translate that into English? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I can. It okay. just keeps going. Lots of things here to be taken in for consideration. Once is this apparent Wesley Hudson. He's been sinned against more than having sinned. Like was his grandmother is similarly shocked. I know somehow you, Warden, are all right. I'm glad Wesley is with you, and you can and will, with God's help, act as a friend. Be emissary for me and Wesley, and work out much good influence for Wesley. Rose, his real name, is an accomplished pianist, end quote. I was like, it took me so long to translate that. And then she tells Clapp that she doesn't want him to mention her at all, but to go to Wesley and ask him to play one boogie-woogie, then recite the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and then play, one, the rugged cross, two, onward Christian soldiers, three, in the garden. Then she notes that, quote, this will help him personally to lift his vibration, C, and, oh, I know, Warden Clap, God will bless you, too. These are trying days for us all. Oh, but the night's for this kid. That old sex degenerate who first caused the brand put on this boy and several others in Sacramento that killed his mother, as in Wesley's mother, this 58-year-old degenerate is now roaming loose in Sacramento. Where is justice? End quote. So she finishes by thanking Warden Clapp and closes out the letter. And I actually looked on Ancestry and found the San Quentin Prison Register, where it states that Earl Bennett, who received the 5- to 75-year sentence two years prior, was actually released in the spring of 1946. So she, she was right. He was released. Uh, Warden Clapp actually responds with a simple letter telling Mrs. Brady Wesley's crime and sentence and offering that she can send him a Bible and... Quote, you may send him as much as $10 per month. It would not do him any good to receive more than this amount, as an inmate is not allowed to spend more than $10 during any one month in our prison canteen. He does not need that much and could get along very well without any money at all, as everything is furnished here, even tobacco. But if you care to send him a little spending money from time to time, you may do so. Do not send him anything else, for packages are not allowed to be received by inmates. He is getting along fine and enjoying good health, end quote. Six weeks later, Mrs. Brady actually responded with a type letter to Warden Clapp, and she said she passed the information along to Wesley's grandmother, who was, quote, 
horribly shocked and humiliated. She's under doctor specialist since, and not at all well so, end quote. She recounts several unverifiable notes about Wesley's mother getting a venereal disease from Wesley's real father, which led to her bad health, and that Wesley was constantly alone, and his first bit of trouble is what finished off his mother. She asked that Wesley be allowed to play piano and organ in the chapel, noting that those allowed to go to chapel services and hear him play, quote, would find a lasting quality remembered in their after years, end quote. She ended the letter wishing and praying that Wesley could be paroled to the boys' town, Father Hallahan in Nebraska, which was this Father Edward J. Flanagan Nebraskan farm, which he started in 1921 to help these like at-risk children. And actually in the 30s, maybe early 40s, there was a movie uh, about boys' town called Boys' Town starring Spencer Tracy. So yeah, bring it all back. Nice. <laughs> Sorry. Bring it all back. I have such dumb knowledge. Oh, I love it. (laughs) Soon after, the California Youth Authority finally caught up with Wesley in a letter from August 1947, and Boise Police Chief George Haskin had actually informed them of Wesley's arrest, and Warden Clapp responded with intake information and the relative release date around the end of December 1948. In December, his cousin Alvin Moore from Baker, Oregon, wrote to Warden Clapp asking if Wesley was still in prison, and why he wasn't responding to any of his letters. And Warren Clapp responded with two sentences, saying that Wesley was still serving time, and he couldn't say when Wesley would be released from the prison. In April 1948, Deputy Sheriff Mel Nickerson from Colfax, Washington, gave Warden Lou Clapp a phone call and requested information about Wesley Hudson. Lou wrote a letter back to him detailing the crime, sentence, incorporating his mugshot, noting Wesley's conduct was good as he played piano at the institution. And behind the official letter about Wesley, Lou actually writes this fun little personal note. So not really even attached to Wesley. It says, quote, They are keeping me pretty busy here as usual with spring work coming on and other projects I have started here, which would have included around that time, you know, Two Yard and uh, the creation of Four House and Five House. The spring weather has been rather cold, but not too cold for golf. Neither have I much time to do much practicing, although... I don't think practice will be necessary, which will be proven when you come down and bring your clubs. That's funny. (laughs) Rob, which is Mrs. Clapp, said to tell Rosalie and Butch hello. We will try to get up your way to say hello sometime, I hope. And in the meantime, come down when you can, end quote. That's the nicest, most humanizing little note Mm -hmm. from the warden to this deputy sheriff in Washington. I just was like, oh, man, I bet that they probably did get together and play some golf. Now, those are just the only letters in his file, but Wesley was up to a lot while he was incarcerated, particularly around the theater and music scene. Robert Schofield was in charge of the prison's rehabilitation program, and he oversaw all the rehabilitative programs and introduced new concepts and fostered a new culture within the prison. Prisoners interested in theater, music, art, creative writing, or developing their own clubs worked with Robert Schofield, and during the spring of 1947, the Idaho State Penitentiary Prison Band was started under William McCollum. In William's intake, it noted a lengthy criminal career over two decades long with stints in jails, state prisons, and even federal penitentiary. Um, In Idaho, it was noted that he, quote, forged a check on a gooding farmer and cashed the same, end quote. So he was in for forgery, and he had a background in music theory, harmony, and arranging, and he was instructed by authorities to begin a prison band. 
According to the October 1947 issue of The Clock, quote, At first, the going was rough. Due to the lack of musical instruments and talent, it was thought then that it would be impossible to create such an organization. However, these obstacles were soon removed and the orchestra began to take form. Bobby Clyde was appointed assistant director. Members of the orchestra when the first show was presented on Thanksgiving Day 1947 were Wes Hudson, pianist, James Blue Eagle Erard, who painted the present chapel, saxophone, and Clyde, drummer. And around these three men, McCollum was able to present a fast-stepping musical that was enjoyed by the entire inmate body. Due to the success of this show, it was decided to present another one on Christmas Day of the same year. Two top-notch vocalists were added to the band for the presentation of the Xmas attraction. Several new members of the orchestra also participated. The Honorable C.A. Robbins, governor of Idaho, and his staff were among the outside visitors. End quote. And the article like continues to list that due to the success of the show, as St. Patrick's Day show was presented in 1948, and even more members were added to the orchestra. It was also noted that William McCollum had two compositions actually being performed by bands in downtown Boise at the Buffalo Club and was, quote, published by the Nordyke Publishing Company of Hollywood, California. Titles are Who's to Blame and Say It Isn't Just a Dream. His recent composition, Stupid Cupid, is also ready for publication. The next show will be presented in October, end quote. So, I looked into the company and actually found a website called the American Song Poem Music Archives that noted the Nordic Publishing Company was founded in 1943, and it was the most dominant company for over a decade for amateur lyricists and composers to publish their music. And they published advertisements in all the like pulp magazines of the day. And 1948 actually happened to be their heyday as they registered over 2,500 songs for copyright, including, apparently, Idaho State Penitentiary inmate William McCollum's music. So somewhere out there, we can find some of his sheet music and, and lyrics. Now, Wesley took the initiative, and he, of course, joined that initial group. And he also joined a theater group later dubbed the Harvest Moon Frolics of 1948. Prison chaplain Reverend Lee Backman led the group as they developed a variety show in the late summer of 1948. After two months of rehearsal, the date of the first performance was set. On October 2, 1948, the preview performance was held on the chapel stage at 1.30 p.m. William McCollum actually decorated this chapel stage, and James Blue Eagle Arard, who also painted the chapel murals that year, painted the background scenery for the performance. Governor C.A. Robbins was invited to attend, which he did. So did Attorney General Robert Smiley, Boise Mayor Potter Howard, and other state officials. That month, Russell Hoskinson, number 7054, wrote an article in the clock titled, Local Thespians Surprise ISP Critics, Harvest Moon Frolics of 48 Novel Show. And the show was emceed by car thief Paul Mariani, number 7400, described as a likable young man who, quote, carried the show along at a fast clip, end quote. Russell wrote that it was a, quote, surprise hit at its premiere showing. One hour before curtain time, some of the local critics, <laughs> which I love that, predicted that the show was due to flop, but a delightful surprise awaited them. The band setting the tempo for the show opened with the theme song of the Frolics. Shine on, Harvest Moon. It was sung by a group called the Melody Trio, consisting of Tex Schulten, Carly, and Golan. 
the chorus is just so great. The, the lyrics are, oh, shine on, shine on, harvest moon, up in the sky. I ain't had no lovin' since April, January, June, or July. Snow time ain't no time to stay outdoors and spoon. So shine on, shine on, harvest moon for me and my gal. And it's it's just kind of this unrequited like love, like oh I miss I miss mm-hmm. you and yeah, it's a very sweet. Yeah, song. it sounds cute. So after the performance, the state officials watched a boxing farce featuring the smiling Irishman Bill Tolley, the crafty Italian Mike Lombardi, and a third boxer Mickey Encinas, which brought the audience to their feet. Then Wesley Hudson played piano in Gib Miller's Four Shicks performance of Choo Choo Chaboogie by Louis Jordan and The Sheik of Araby, which, quote, bordered on the professional side, end quote. Paul Mariani played the drums, and Brower played guitar, and Gib Miller played the saxophone on these two songs. The Glee Club performed along with Peanuts Cauldron, who performed a clog dance, <laughs> which is just so funny to imagine someone at the old Ben doing a clog dance. But also his, I'm assuming it's his nickname was Peanuts. It was. <laughs> yes, these are all, uh, th- these are not, nicknames that i'm giving him right, these are right. all directly from the what, clock what was his last name condren peanuts condren was his name yeah okay <laughs> that's funny peanuts condren the clog dancer quote west hudson local pianist as usual entertained in his intimidable way end quote jack forrester performed beautiful dreamer and the audience demanded an encore and after the performance governor c.a robbins actually wrote a letter to william mccollum and wesley hudson Quote, complimenting them on the success of their recent musical success. My Idaho, end quote. This is from the letter. Let me thank you for the honor of having your song, My Idaho, dedicated to me in your recent program. It is a dandy, and some of my friends are much more musical than I. Think it excellent, and it contains some unusually beautiful chords. Again, thanks and best wishes, end quote. So just this personal letter from the governor to Wesley and William, thanking them for writing the song My Idaho and performing it and dedicating it to him. It's just so cool. Yeah, and I also just love that whole story about this, you know, uh, talent show, essentially, in that it is a reminder that, again, these aren't just, like, career criminals who, like, went into jail and did nothing but, like, scheme about what their next... Mm -hmm you know, crime was going to be that so many of them had talents um, far beyond, you know, what most people had. And they just got themselves into a situation that they shouldn't have. And um, so I I love to hear about all the different talents that all of these people performed and how much everyone loved it. Um, And it probably was such a great moment of levity um, in a site that otherwise doesn't have a lot of it. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely cool story i've been wanting to tell it on the show for a long time and i'm so glad to be able to do that now and 
I actually worked with the staff at the Idaho State Archives to look through Governor Robbins' papers, but unfortunately, there's no copy of yeah. this letter or of the sheet music. So if there are any listeners out there, if you ever come across My Idaho by William McCollum and Wesley Hudson, please send it to me or let me know where it's at because I will totally pick it up. I want to rec- recreate this song. Not to be confused with My Private Idaho by the B-52s, which is also a great song. Right, yeah. (laughs) Maybe we'll just cover that. (laughs) If you discover the original of that, uh, I I guess let us know. But you could also just listen to it on Spotify these days. Again, a great song. (laughs) If you haven't listened, highly recommend. Yeah. All right. So he's had this amazing performance, and... In November 1948, the prison parole officer actually interviewed Wesley about his adjustments and his plans for release. And in that report, Wesley actually felt confident that he could get back into a dance orchestra if he was released back to Sacramento. He was a member of the American Federation of Labor, uh, the Musicians Union, and felt sure he could re-enter the union and they would help him actually secure a new job. He was actually paroled a month later on December 31st, 1948 two months before his 21st birthday. The January 1949 issue of The Clock documented the one-year anniversary of the prison band. Quote, Our present leader, Bobby Clyde, and Wes Hudson, pianist, are the only members of the original group with us now. Bill McCollum, who organized the band, is now working on the bowl gang. We understand he is to appear before the board in January. We wish him luck. Wes Hudson is leaving us this month via the parole route and we will wish him lots of luck, end quote. They note further down the page that the original band consisted of four people, and by 1949, it boasted 27 members. So Wes was right there helping that band bloom and blossom. It seems Wesley left Idaho and returned to Sacramento, but it's unclear what he did next as he was declared a parole violator on September 2nd, 1949. The last note I have about him is an obituary for his stepfather, David Hudson, in 1969 that just mentions his name. I couldn't find any documentation that he served more time at this institution or any others, and for all I know, he could still be alive and nearing his 100th birthday. For two years, one month, and 15 days, Wesley Hudson played the piano in the chapel and at performances at the institution and brought joy, happiness, and good vibrations throughout the prison. Oh, that's so nice. Um, Did you say he was a parole violator? He was. Yeah, they listed him as a parole violator. Did it say what it was for? uh -uh. Uh-uh. And I I imagine it was probably just a failure to report. Mm. And so they probably had no idea where he was at and therefore just kind of disappeared. Interesting. (laughs) back in the days yeah. when you could do that yeah and so so like throughout all of this i i wonder did he go to canada did he go to france did he go to mm-hmm. somewhere mm-hmm. in south america mm-hmm. like this psychiatrist had told him or you know did he stay in sacramento and keep playing music well and also sacramento is not too far from san francisco which has mm-hmm. historically been a, a more uh, accepting city i think though maybe not quite at this point yet but i don't know that's that's an interesting thought yeah so that is wesley hudson number 7047 that was great 
That was lovely. And also, every time you said his name, his full name, Wesley Hudson, it just sounds so, um, like, rich man from the 1930s. Oh, it's Wesley <laughs> Hudson. Wesley? <laughs> <laughs> totally, I get that. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Very well done. Nice. Very interesting. And, and we didn't really even get a chance to talk about his sexuality too much. Um, but I, I just wanted to say, like, good for him that he, because they, they talk so openly um, about it on his intake form, that he seemed to be very aware of who he was and he didn't seem to have any problems um, expressing that. And in the 1940s, heaven knows that that was not a safe time to be doing that. And so um, yeah. that's that's amazing. Um, and I, I love that part of the story too. And it seems like his stepfather actually really accepted him mm. and continued to write to him and support him uh, throughout his life. Yeah, that's great. I love that. That's a great story. Well, thanks, Guy. You said they play sometimes in the chapel. Was that religious music or they just used the no, chapel as an they, auditorium? Or? They used the chapel as an auditorium. It had a stage in it. And some offices in the back, but it had a bonafide stage in the, in the chapel there where, I understand, uh, years, years ago they used to put on Christmas plays there and so forth. And there was some, some of the, one of the most beautiful pictures of the Last Supper that I ever saw painted on the walls of that chapel. And there was, uh, beautiful morals paintings all the way around the walls of the chapel. Who do you have for us today? So, um, I have got number 3231, Cora Sampley. Uh, this is not quite as um, feel-good, uh, warm and fuzzy. It's not bad, but it's it's uh, perhaps not as fun as yours. So, sources today, of course, your inmate file from the Idaho State Archives, newspapers.com articles, ancestry.com records, an article on ktbb.com by Brian Holmes titled Get to Know Idaho Cul-de-Sac, an Outlaw Town, Cul-de-Sac, Idaho on Nez Perce County Museum.com, the word shebang on Oxford English Dictionary, <laughs> um, <sighs> shebangdays.wixsite.com. <laughs> This is a random little rabbit hole, and you'll see why this is relevant. An article titled A Brief History of Pregnancy Tests by Mark Lalanilla from LiveScience.com. The uh, State v. Alcorn, 64p.1014 on CourtListener.com. Um, and then a couple brief articles from Wikipedia, Cul-de-Sac, Idaho, Church of the United Brethren, and Peritonitis. So... Huh. Who knows where this is going? <laughs> so Cora Sampley was born Cora Bell McCoy in Idaho on March 17th, 1884 to Alfred McCoy and Emma Helm McCoy. And Cora was the second of five children. She had an older sister, Lizzie, and younger siblings, Ernest, Lita, and Lawrence. Her parents actually met in California, but soon after their marriage, they moved to Bedrock, Idaho, which is in Nez Perce County, and that is where all of their children were born. Cora and her family, they were raised in the United Brethren Church, and she attended Sunday school, obviously, through that church. She also attended secular school. Her intake form says that she went for eight years, but then it also made a note that she, quote, went through high school, end quote. So I'm huh. not really sure how long she attended for. It could be um, this may have been early enough that 
eighth grade was kind of high school. School was different a little bit back then. Um, I'm not a school historian, so I don't want to say that yeah. for sure, but maybe that's why. Then on October 27th, 1900, when she was just 16 years old, she married a man, William Francis Crabb in Nez Perce County. Frank was a farmer from Oregon. He was about 15 years Cora Sr. So um, Frank was a farmer from Oregon. He was about 15 years Cora Sr. And their son, Charlie Alfred Crabb, was born on June 27th, 1901, which is uh, only um, about eight months. I guess it's about nine months after they got married. So it, there could be a question as to a shotgun winning. He could have also been a honeymoon baby. Um, mm. You know, who's to say? But it's also quite possible that even if it was a shotgun wedding, they may not have known that she was pregnant because it would have only been about a month. And these days we can tell at about a month if you're pregnant or not, but this was not the case over a hundred years ago. So I went down the tiniest bit of a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> no. This is shocking. Um, I promise it will not be as long as last week's. But I went into this rabbit hole of sort of the modern pregnancy test. And I mean, by that, I mean a test you could do that would signify the presence of HCG, which is the pregnancy hormone. That only came about in the 1920s. And that happened, that pregnancy test, scientists would inject a woman's urine into an immature female mouse, frog, or rabbit. And if HCG was present, then the animal would go into heat, essentially force the animal into ovulation. Um, and that is what? how, so if it went into heat, then you were pregnant. Why? Yeah. So that yeah. was, that was, that was in about the 1920s. Scientists figured out how to do that. But in the 1900, there just wasn't a definite test. So all that tiny bit of a rabbit hole to say it's quite possible they had no idea she was pregnant when they got married, if she was pregnant before they got married. I don't know why wow. I went down that rabbit hole, but it was kind of interesting. I've never heard that. Did it work? Was it effective? Yeah, I think they did it for a really long time. Um, I feel like there was sort of in the 50s, it was um, kind of the joke that the mouse, I don't want to say died, but maybe that was, but basically the, there was sort of a joke about a mouse if you were waiting to find out if you were pregnant or not. So I think it, I think it was, I mean, certainly not accurate to the extent that I'm sure our tests are now, but if you were far enough along and there was the pregnancy hormone in your urine, then... I guess that was what happened. I, I don't, I'm not a scientist. Please don't actually listen to me. So the marriage between Cora and Frank was not long lived. I could not find records as to why that was. I couldn't find documents or records of like of the divorce itself, but they were definitely divorced before Charlie was five years old. Cora got custody of Charlie, but weirdly gave him to her parents to raise, who had by that time had moved from Nez Perce into uh, Canyon County, South Emmett, to be um, particular. Again, the reason she gave him to her parents, but I still don't understand why, is because on November 11th, 1905, she married a man named Grant Hamblin in Nez Perce County. Grant was born in Iowa uh, in June 1865, about two months after the American Civil War had ended, and this makes Grant nearly 20 years Cora Sr. Grant Ham Hamblin was also previously married to a woman named Caroline Lemming in 1894, and he and his uh, ex-wife had a young daughter, Gladys, who had been born in 1895. And I don't know how Cora and Grant met, but it doesn't matter because they married. And their first daughter, Harriet Elizabeth, was born September 5th, 1906 in cul-de-sac, Idaho. And their son, Coy, was born April 1st, 1909, also in cul-de-sac. Now, 
you may be a lifelong Idahoan and absolutely know what cul-de-sac Idaho is. I was not one of them. And so let me tell you a little bit about cul-de-sac Idaho. So the town is in northern Idaho in Nez Perce County. It's actually on the Nez Perce Reservation, only a few miles from Lapway, which is actually the town that we were in with Estella Wilson last week. It's about 20 miles south of Lewiston. And cul-de-sac is a tiny town of only 0.22 square miles. Now, when you think of a cul-de-sac these days, you probably think of that tiny little street in your neighborhood where all of the houses are in a circle. That's pretty much what cul-de-sac Idaho was named after. So Charles S. Mellon, who was the president of the Northern Pacific Railroad, gave the name to the small town because it was actually the turnaround for a proposed route for the company. And so the term cul-de-sac is French. It means either dead end or a place with only one outlet. And as I said, that's exactly what cul-de-sac the town was. After Mellon gave his speech calling the town cul-de-sac, the citizens applied for a post office under the name cul-de-sac. The post office department actually refused this name and, without permission from anyone, just started calling the town Magnolia instead. <sighs> and so uh, then in 1902, the citizens again proposed that the post office be called cul-de-sac, this time taking the dashes out and making it one word. So it's now C-U-L-D-E-S-A-C. And this time that name was granted. So before, actually, cul-de-sac was known for being a railroad turnaround, it was known as being a headquarters for outlaws. And the term for that, for being a headquarters for outlaws, is called a shebang. S-H-E-B-A-N-G. So according to the Oxford English Dictionary, which, if you don't know, it is a great source to discover the history of the usage of words. It's actually one of my favorite things because I'm a giant nerd. The word shebang was first used in 1867, first meaning a hut, a shed, or dwelling. Mark Twain actually used it in an 1872 book, Roughing It. He used it twice. He used shebang once to refer to lodging and once to actually refer to a vehicle. The word shebang was first used in the context of outlaws in 1890 by author slash explorer slash vigilante Nathaniel Pitt Langford in his book Vigilante Days and Ways. And he says, quote, toward the close of summer of 1862, the band organized by Plummer, an outlaw, having increased in numbers, he selected two points of rendezvous as basis for their operations. These were called shebangs, end quote. <sighs> now, Sadly, I was unable to find anything in Idaho newspapers specifically about cul-de-sac's reputation as a shebang, but part of the reason for that is because there is a shebang creek in the same area, so it, when I searched, like, shebang cul-de-sac, that was always what came up. I just could not find anything about its historical reputation as a shebang, but of course it's very likely that the creek was named after the shebang that was cul-de-sac. So in fact, Cul-de-sac is so proud of the reputation as the shebang that for the last 23 years, the town has hosted the annual cul-de-sac shebang days hosted by the GEM Community Committee, who started shebang days as a way to fund community projects. The festival is had. That's awesome. I know, isn't that fun? The festival shebang days. Shebang days. Uh, the festival is held every second Saturday in June, and it includes parades, events, live auctions, entertainment, food, and shopping. Their Facebook page says, quote, start with breakfast and the parade, stay for the entertainment, tricycle races, bounce houses and games, haystack hunt, food court and craft vendors. There is a live auction at 3 p.m., end quote. 
And so the 23rd Shebang Days was held this year on June 11th, 2022. This is the information from shebangdays.wixsite.com that this year their parade included horses, old-time cars, festival royalty and floats, and lots of candy thrown at the crowd. The 2022 featured entertainment was Jerry Harris, who's a master hypnotist, and there was also a dunk tank, a barrel train for the kids, and even a duck poop board, where you make a bet, and then you wait and see if the duck poops on your square. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Amazing. I like that, I know. (laughs) So, um, overall, it just seems like a really fun summer festival to attend if you're in the area uh, in the second week of June, or if you want to make a trip specifically up for that. So now, uh, these days, cul-de-sac has a population of about 400, and according to a brief article by Brian Holmes of KTVV, quote, Today, the train tracks are home to overgrown weeds. We asked all four city members how many cul-de-sacs there are in cul-de-sac. They told KTVB there are a whopping four cul-de-sacs in the town of cul-de-sac, end quote. Wow. So um, just a little rabbit hole there, but it, I did not know anything about cul-de-sac Idaho. Yeah, I've heard of it just, just from working at the old pen, right. but yeah, I, I haven't known all this detail. It's very cool. So now we will get back to Cora. So by the 1910 census, Grant had moved on from farming to being the local barber in cul-de-sac. And I think in late 1909 or maybe early 1910, the family might have moved to Oregon because there is a record of them both in cul-de-sac and in Enterprise, Oregon, in the northeastern corner of the state, about 100 miles away from cul-de-sac. But I wasn't sure why they were listed in both places. At some point, the family moved further south to Canyon County, perhaps because Cora's parents and her son Charlie lived there. And then the last Hamblin child, Ruby, was born in Middleton on March 6, 1915. Now, strangely, Cora is listed on Ruby's birth certificate, which was filed in 1962 as Ellen McCoy. I don't know why she doesn't go by Ellen in any other record. It was just, I don't know, maybe they called her that later in life. I'm not really sure. Then, in 1917, the Idaho Daily Statesman reported that Cora was a patient at a Nampa hospital for an operation for, quote, appendiceal abscess, end quote. And this is basically an abscess that forms around the appendix as a result of the perforation of inflammation of the appendix. So basically, she had appendicitis, and the Statesman reported that, quote, her condition remained serious, end quote. But obviously, she survived this operation, and by the 1920 census, the family is back in cul-de-sac. Again, she left Charlie with her parents, and it seems that he remained with them until adulthood, so it's probably quite likely he had a pretty minimal relationship with his mother and really felt that he had been raised by his grandparents. Around March 1922, Cora and Grant had divorced, though it is unclear why, and I could not, again, find any document to find the exact date of that. About a month later, on June 22, 1922, Cora married James D. Sampley in Asseton, Washington. James was a trucker and a farmer who was from Osaka, Clearwater County, Idaho, and Osaka is only about 30 miles east of cul-de-sac, so they probably ran into each other just being around town. This marriage to James Sampley, though, seemed to be a sham almost from the beginning. And this is according to John L. Phillips, the prosecuting attorney of Lewiston, quote, Cora was divorced from Grant Hamblin in June of last year. Some three months thereafter, she married Mr. Sampley, but from time to time, she comes to live in adultery with Hamblin, end quote. 
So, strangely, after she and Grant divorced and after she married Sampley, she and Grant uh, seem to continue at least their sexual relationship, which I just find so odd. But, you know, I guess I'm not in their situation, so who am I to say? So, according to Phillips, while Cora and Grant were living together after she had married James Sampley... Cora and Grant were involved in some medical procedures quite illegally. The Spokesman Uh-oh. Review broke the news on October 27th, 1922, that Grant and Cora were being charged with murder, quote, following the death last Saturday of Lillian Mitchell, 19-year-old Lewiston waitress, end quote. Lillian May Mitchell was third of seven children born to Robert, a well driller, and Elizabeth Mitchell, and Lillian was born on August 24th, 1903, and she went by the nickname Lily. In the 1910 census, her family lived in Tula Lake, Oregon, but 10 years later, they were living in Lapway. And according to all the newspaper reports, in 1922, Lily was working as a waitress at the American Cafe in Lewiston. The only details of the series of events that leads to this death comes from the Spokesman Review from Spokane, Washington on January 27, 1923, and it was written mostly from the witness testimony at the trial. So around August 1922, Lily, who was not married, found out that she was pregnant, probably from a mouse or a frog. <laughs> but she, I, sorry. I like that idea. Sorry. <laughs> so, I, if someone just skipped ahead, they're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> a frog or, yeah. Um, so <laughs> she found out she was pregnant and she did not confide in anyone but her older sister, Ada. And she decided uh, that an abortion was the best option for her. So on October 5th and 6th, Lily approached Dr. J.N. Alley, a medical doctor, asking for his help with the abortion. And though it is unclear, it seems quite likely that he refused to help her. So, as is often the case for women seeking abortions when abortion is illegal, she had to settle for a more dangerous option. And apparently that option was Cora Sampley and Grant Hamblin in cul-de-sac. And it is equally unclear as to why Cora and Grant offered their services. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that this was a procedure either one of them had done before or that it was, like, well-known around town. She was someone that women could go to to obtain abortions. She was a nurse by trade, according to her intake form, so she probably had some medical knowledge. But why she got involved in this kind of medical procedure, I, I can't say. At least she's a nurse. But, but st- I, I just find it so odd that of all of the people who probably were living in Lewiston who had some kind of experience in that or perhaps women who knew herbal ways to deal with that situation, I just don't understand why Cora was like, oh, yes, I will help you with this. So word reached Cora that Lily wanted an abortion, and according to Ada, Cora came to the American Cafe, quote, to have Ada tell Lillian to meet her near the Bennett garage to make the cul-de-sac trip, end quote. So, on October 9th, 1922, Lily, accompanied by a friend, Josephine Brogger, who she had actually asked to take her shift at the cafe while she was getting the operation, there, the two of them met Cora and Grant's oldest daughter, Harriet, who was 22 at this time, and she was in this red automobile. And the red automobile, according to trial testimony, belonged to a man named Jack Lamb, who had allowed Harriet to use it. Uh, I'm not clear. It's not clear if he knew what she was using it for, but it almost seems like they set up all of these things to try to make it not traceable back to them if things were to go wrong in some way. Um, yeah. 
which is, is really interesting. So Harriet drove Lily to Grant's barbershop in cul-de-sac, where Cora and Grant took her into a room to begin the operation. According to trial testimony, Cora performed the abortion while Grant administered the chloroform. Oh, man. Lily then stayed in cul-de-sac overnight and was sent back to Lewiston by train the next morning. Lily's sister Ada testified to, quote, the return of Lillian in her weak condition the next day, end quote. And Lily's condition did not get any better over the next several days. And finally, Dr. Alley visited her on October 13th, quote, and found evidence indicating a criminal operation, end quote. Within days, gangrene set in, and just a week later, on October 20th, 1922, Lily died. The official cause of death listed on her death record is, quote, peritonitis caused by criminal abortion, end quote. And peritonitis is the inflammation of the peritoneum, a silk-like membrane that lines the abdominal wall and covers the organs in the abdomen. According to the county prosecuting attorney, quote, a bottled fetus marked with the name and date of the deceased was found on the search of the premises, end quote, but apparently this was not entered into evidence during the trial and also seems like a completely macabre thing to have. Uh, The Spokesman Review reported on October 26, 1922, that Cora and Grant had been arrested the next day because of Lily's written, quote, deathbed statement, end quote, and their preliminary examination was held on October 25th. But, quote, 250 persons gathered in the courtroom were disappointed when the defendants waived examination, end quote. So, obviously, word got out that this had happened, that they were being charged with it, and 250 people showed up to watch and hear about um, what had happened. The couple struggled to maintain attorneys. Their original attorney, John Green, simply refused to show up during their preliminary trial, Grant then told a spokesman review reporter that he would retain McNamee and Clements attorneys from Lewiston for the case, saying that they basically owed him because he had served as a star witness in a recent murder trial. But, quote, attorney Werner Clements said that he did not think his firm would undertake the defense of Hamlin and Mrs. Sampley. I am as innocent of any crime as you are, Hamblin told the reporter, and when my case is put before a jury, I will be acquitted. This whole affair is nothing but a dirty scandal. There are a lot of people against me in cul-de-sac, or I would not be in this fix. I don't know why, but people have been plotting against me in cul-de-sac ever since I had trouble with my life eight years ago, end quote. He also said he was afraid that some of his quote-unquote enemies in cul-de-sac would attempt to lynch him, but, quote, although there was high feeling against Hamblin and Mrs. Sampley, there had been no noticeable talk of violence, end quote. The couple were held in the Nez Perce County Jail awaiting trial, which, according to the Spokesman Review, was overcrowded, quote, 20 prisoners confined in apartments designed to house but 12, end quote. Cora was the only one singled out by name as one of the women who were being kept in this potentially hazardous condition, but this only further spread her infamy in the region. The couple's trial began in Lewiston on January 15th, 1923, and people in the region were completely riveted, so much so that they literally fought for a place in the courtroom. Quote, seating accommodations of the Nez Perce County courtroom were inadequate to accommodate at two sessions of the district court. The crowds assembled to witness the opening trials of Grant Hamblin of Cul-de-Sac and Mrs. Cora Sampley of Osaka, end quote. The court had trouble seating a jury, probably because the case had gained so much notoriety and was so well-known around town. But the trial began the next day on January 26th, where most of the evidence mentioned in the story of the crime uh, just a few minutes ago had come out. 
There was also some question as to which crime the couple had committed. Quote, the attorneys during a recess today presented to Judge Scalis their view as to the degree of crime involved in the charge. The state contends that what is known as the Alcorn cases established the offense a second-degree murder involving a penalty of 10 years to life in prison. Defense attorneys hold that by a statute of 1921, the crime is classed as involuntary manslaughter, with penalty ranging from 1 to 10 years. The court indicated that his instructions to the jury would embrace the latter interpretation of the law, end quote. Let me explain what the Alcorn case was. So, the Alcorn case came before the Idaho State Supreme Court on April 29, 1901, after E.J. Alcorn, a physician from Chalice who specialized in, quote, diseases of women, end quote, performed an illegal abortion on a woman named Cora A. Burke, and he was found guilty of manslaughter. He actually served in the Idaho State Penitentiary as number 739 for four and a half years. And the Alcorn decision stated, quote, where an unnatural abortion is sought to be caused by the use of instruments and drugs, or either, and death results, an abortion not being necessary to save the life of a woman, such acts under the statutes of Idaho, constitutes the crime of murder in the second degree, end quote, which would apply to abortion accusations in the future. And so Dr. Alcorn retained his manslaughter charge rather than uh, murder in the second degree. What they're kind of trying to say here is if an abortion is not necessary to save the life of a woman, then that could constitute the crime of murder in the second degree, but that that ultimately the Judge Scalis decides that the charge for both Cora and Grant um, was reduced from first-degree murder to involuntary manslaughter after um, the Alcorn case. Kind of an interesting little bit there. And so pertinent to... Yeah, <laughs> what's going on right now, absolutely. Which, at the time that I was writing this, I was writing this in May 2022, uh, I think it was actually prior to when that big announcement really finally came. And so I did not realize how pertinent this actually would be. Finally, on January 29th, the jury returned a guilty verdict against Cora Sampley and Grant Hamblin for involuntary manslaughter by performing a criminal abortion. And on February 5th, both were given three to ten year sentences, and they were going to be transferred to Boise on February 7th. Cora Sampley and Grant Hamblin entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on February 9th, 1923. So according to her intake form, it says, Legitimate occupation nurse served apprenticeship, yes. Her height is not listed. Her complexion is medium. Her weight is not listed. Color of hair, light red hair. Color of eyes, gray-blue pecule, so it's their gray-blue. Conjugal relationships. Married, has four children, both parents living, left prisoners home when she was 17 or 16. She has had religious instruction and attended Sunday school in the United Brethren Church. She did still claim membership in that church. She uh, can read and write, and again, attended school for eight years, but says she went through high school. Former imprisonment nun, habits of life, abstinent, uh, name and address of nearest relative is Mrs. Emma McCauley, Jacksonville, Oregon, who is her mother. Peculiarity and build and feature, regular, she's tall and thin, condition of teeth, both plates, no beard worn, uh, <laughs> size of boot worn, six, Property found on convict, $18.41. Uh, parents born in, yes. So, good news. Her parents were born. And, uh, <laughs> in the U.S.? <laughs> just, it literally just says parents born in, and then the answer is yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then has lived in Idaho all her life but two years. Um, the only thing noted on her battalion was a long, abdominal incision scar on the right side of her body, which 
was probably because of her appendix operation. She was the fifth inmate in the new women's ward, which was only three years old at this point. And some of the other inmates included Lida Southard, uh, who I covered in episode 10, Rebecca Chacon, who uh, we covered in episode 19, as well as a mother and daughter duo who were both in for adultery, who uh, I would like to cover um, soon. Yeah. Um, so there is very little mention of or documents that profile how Corey behaved in prison, but it was probably fairly uneventful and satisfactory, like most of our women, or at least, mm-hmm. um, you know, that we know of. One document showed that Cora applied for parole in March 1924, but it was denied. And that all changed when Warden Snook received a letter from Dr. J.H. Crampton, a doctor in Lewiston, who was apparently answering a letter Snook had written to him a few days earlier, asking about the condition of Cora's son, Coy, who was apparently very sick. Quote, The condition of this boy is very bad, as he has a sarcoma or cancer of the thigh, resulting from the kick of a horse. Another operation, I am certain, will not do the boy any good, and it is hard to state just how long he may survive this condition. It is my opinion he will not live over four to six months, and perhaps much less. If the mother would take the right course in the case, no doubt she would be of great assistance to him, end quote. So sarcomas and cancer doesn't usually develop from an injury like a kick from a horse, according to people who know these things, like people at John Hopkins and the Mayo Clinic. But it is possible that the kick led to either the discovery of the sarcoma, or sometimes if a person has a specific condition called lymphedema or long-term swelling, it can increase the risk of sarcoma. So it could have developed maybe through continual swelling from the kick or something like that. So Cora applied for parole around the same time, saying so that, quote, I may be able to return home and nurse and care for my son who is afflicted with cancer of the thigh bone, end quote. And probably because she had served close to her minimum sentence on top of her desire to be with and take care of her son, she was granted parole on September 3rd, 1924. And upon her release, she served one year, six months and 26 days of a three to 10 year sentence. And Grant Hamblin actually was released on the very same day, probably for that very same reason. And she indeed returned to cul-de-sac and rarely left Coy's side until he died on June 15th, 1925, so less than a year uh, after she had gotten out. And so Coy suffered from cancer for about 11 months before he passed away at just 16 years of age, uh, which is oh, which man. is really sad. A few months later, on August 8th, 1925, Cora wrote the State Board of Pardons making application for a final pardon. Quote, In support of my application, I wish to say that I was paroled from the penitentiary on the third day of September, 1924, having asked especially to be released that I might return home to nurse my little boy. I was continuously at his bedside until he died on the 15th day of June, 1925, since which time I have been at home with my husband, James Sampley, not Grant Hamblin. Ah. So, which I can't, I cannot understand that whole relationship, but I digress. So she continues, quote, I have made my reports regularly and have lived up to my parole agreement in every way. I can assure you, honorable gentlemen, that I have paid dearly for the mistake that I made, and I will certainly see that nothing of its kind will ever happen to me again. And I pray that in view of my conduct while on parole and my determination to lead such a life as becomes a wife and mother, that my application for pardon will be granted and that I will be restored to citizenship, end quote. 
This letter, interestingly, was written after an, an unnamed clerk, presumably the clerk of the Board of Pardons, wrote to her, suggesting that she make an application for pardon, but that it was going to take $7.50 to cover the cost of quote-unquote advertising, which is just oh, essentially alerting the public she was going to be pardoned. Um, we do see that every once in a while in the files. There'll be just a little newspaper clipping that says so-and-so is going to be, you know, is making application for pardon and is going to be released. And so basically he's asking her to send $7.50 to cover the cost of advertising and preparing papers, which I had never seen before. It seems a little sketchy. It's pretty common, especially in the men's. Okay. That they would have to pay for the postage mm. and for the newspaper write-up saying, hey, I'm in like six months, I'm planning and going in front of the board. Okay. See, I don't, yeah. I, that's the only time I've ever seen that. Oh, gotcha. So, nice. yeah, I don't, that's, I, I did not know that. So. I thought you were going down the route of like, but it never got posted and she got scammed. <laughs> and she got and scammed, like, oh, man. No. Yeah. I, it was weird that there wasn't a name. Like, I think it just said clerk. And I was like, or she may have written and said, the clerk said, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, this is weird. But it seems legit because she was actually pardoned on October 8th, 1925, almost three years to the day that she performed the fatal abortion on Lillian Mitchell. And again, to be clear, she did return to her husband, James Sampley, even though she and Grant had remained so close and, of course, had committed the crime together, probably... That was probably part of her conditional parole, was that she doesn't go back to Grant, that she has to return to James Sampley. So she did actually live yeah. with him as her husband for a while, and um, possibly until her death. Uh, because the next thing that we know of Cora Sampley is, as so often uh, the case, her death, uh, which came on November 18th, 1927, in the St. Ignatius Hospital in Colfax, Washington. Uh, and again, I don't know the cause of her death because she died in Washington, where the death records that are posted on Ancestry don't detail the cause of death. So if anyone, and actually I have had um, someone who found a Washington death record that listed um, the cause of death. And so if that person would be interested or anyone else would be interested in doing that again, I would love that. The fact that she died in a hospital would seem to indicate either a somewhat prolonged illness or an accident of some kind. Uh, we know that it was very likely not of natural causes because she was only 42 years old when she died. And, yeah. and she died just really two years after she was pardoned, two years after her son died. This was not, you know, an, an old age situation. And uh, so she's buried in the Colfax Cemetery where Coy was buried two years before. Grant, meanwhile, lived with his and Cora's daughter Ruby in Oregon until his death in 1942. And he is also buried in the Colfax Cemetery in fact, all of the Hamblin family, except for Ruby, were buried in the Colfax Cemetery. And Cora's oldest son, Charlie, is buried in Malheur County, Oregon, after his death in 1975. And again, it's unclear if Charlie and Cora ever had much of a relationship at all. And that is all I could find on uh, number 3231, Cora Sampley. Um, nice. Who, again, whose story was... Far as I was like rereading this, I was like, "Oh, this is um, awfully pertinent in this day <sighs> these days." Um, so obviously, you know, we'll try to avoid political topics as much as possible. But I think all I really want to say is that what happened to Lillian is what happens to a lot of women, and it is tragic and it is dangerous. And I think that's really all I can say without getting too political. I mean, I think she's the second woman that I've covered who has been involved in in an abortion death. 
and it's tragic and and for the the victims it to them is truly like a the only option that they can see in front of them and it is often sometimes it isn't but often it is a difficult choice to have to make and it is even more tragic that that decision then leads to their death and of course Cora shouldn't have been doing it in the first place right it yeah. the, it's very interesting to me how little deal or fact is made of the fact that she was a nurse it barely comes up in the trial at all. Um, I could not find any records that stated like where she had studied or I mean, she may not have studied, but like where she was working, if she was like a practicing nurse at the time. Kind of a lot of question marks in in this case. But yeah, great work. Of course, Guy. And you. yeah, I can't believe how pertinent mm-hmm. that has really been because we don't intend to talk about things like a, a major pandemic mm-hmm. uh, just before it happens or, <laughs> you know, abortion issues and uh, rights of abortion mm-hmm. and, and how those are in constant kind of flux. Mm-hmm. Um, so fascinating timing and it's a difficult topic. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Yeah, you handled it great. Oh, so thanks. nicely done, Thank Sky. You. And as you said previously, yeah, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Right. All right. All right. Awesome work, Sky. Thank you. You too. So, Good stuff as always. What an interesting episode. Truly. Yeah, yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thank you all for tuning in. And you know what? We're going to catch you next week. So do your own time. Do your own number. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. 